Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Stephanie LaPierre, founder and CEO of Tealbook, a supplier data platform that's raised over $72 million in funding. Stephanie, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, so I'm from originally from Quebec. I'm French-speaking, and it's the last name. Left Quebec when I was 18 to go and be a ski bum in the Rockies. I was a ski instructor in Whistler. Decided to go to university and learn English, so that worked out well. Uh, come from a you know a long line of entrepreneurs. My grandfather had started Pepsi, a bottling and distribution arm of Pepsi Cola in Quebec when I think in the forties or fifties, and passed away fairly young. And so my grandmother took over the business and ran Pepsi until the PepsiCo centralized and bought her out in ninety one. So got to see someone being quite entrepreneurial and raising three kids and being really part of the community, you know, also understanding sort of branding, marketing from, you know, having Pepsi sort of as part of my childhood. I wore a lot of Pepsi towels, Pepsi t-shirts, Pepsi skins, you know, but mostly it's just inspired by her. And then my family, you know, when I look at everyone in my surrounding, that's my Mom, my my brother, my sister, everybody's an entrepreneur. My husband's an entrepreneur. So I'm definitely it's part of my growing up and my DNA. So I always knew I wanted to start a business. I just didn't know it was going to be in the AI data space and supply chain. <laughs> so that's like, we'll go more into that. But uh, always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and build something and have, you know, have a lot of, say, control or really have a lot of impact into building something that I would be proud of. Oh, that's super cool. And let's talk about skiing a little bit. Are you still an active skier? Yes. And so we uh, we have a place north of Toronto where we ski on weekends and we like to go to bigger mountains. So recently was out in Switzerland and we're off to Whistler for March break with the kids. So big skiing family. So if you could choose anywhere in the world to ski, where would it be? Oh, I just came back from Zermatt. And so I would definitely ski there a lot it's like so beyond just the mountain the you know bluebird skies and sunshine and mission star restaurant mid-mountain and champagne bar at the base a super fun mountain really fun experience both skiing and apres skiing so to me skiing is the whole experience it's not just the skiing part but yeah we go to Whistler every year it's the mountain I used to teach at I'm we're super familiar we have friends and so we like to go back typically every year nice that's awesome now, let's dive deep into a few questions that help us just better understand what makes you tick as a CEO and founder. So first one is, what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, so I was just chatting before. I'm probably like the last CEO to read the hard thing about hard things from Ben Harris. And I just relate so much to what he wrote. And it's probably part of the journey and where we're at and have gone through some challenges in the past year and having grown really fast, sort of. Yeah, just a lot of the topics that he brings up are very relatable. And as a single founder, I found it can be a really lonely place. And so having someone and reading 
something that is so topical to where I'm at and what I've lived through at a different scale just makes me feel better about myself. So that was like, <laughs> we're going to the other side and, and having built now, obviously, a really successful venture firm. And, you know, without being too cliche, when I read Frank Slootman's uh, book, MTAP, that was also just really inspiring from a leadership perspective, uh, how he's thinking about, you know, and some of the challenges that he's been into company service now and turning things around and focus and, you know, scaling back at a velocity that, you know, we hope to reach at some point. Yeah. Amped Up is such a good book. And it's, I don't know if it's that common, but to me, it, it seemed pretty rare for someone who's an active operator to write a book like that. So it was fun hearing from someone who's still very much in the hot seat and, and very much under pressure and really getting a behind the scenes look at how that company is operating and everything he's doing there from a leadership perspective. It's a just a really fascinating read. Yeah. And I always think like, it'd be so great to be like an intern as a CEO to like, I don't know, spend one week with one of those guys just to see how they're operating. Because you, you know, especially if you're a first time founder, you don't have the chance necessarily to see what it's like to be a CEO of a tech company. I've never worked for a tech company before Tailbook, so I didn't even get exposed to seeing in real life. And so you make decisions that are the best decisions. But yeah, I'd be curious to I could spend like a couple of weeks, I don't know, a year with different CEOs to see how they operate. I think that would be so amazing. So maybe a program we can start at some point in the future. <laughs> nice. I love that. And you mentioned there the loneliness of being a founder. And I think it's lonely even if you have co-founders. But as you mentioned, it's especially lonely when you're a, a sole founder. So what have you done you know, outside of reading books to try to solve that or help yourself or you know, have some more support from other founders who you know aren't your co-founders, but they've maybe been in a similar position to what you're in today? Yeah, I'd say I'm part, one of my investors, Stand Up Ventures with Michelle McBain. And so she invests in women founders. And I think she's got about 25 portfolio companies now. And we were the first investment. And so they create a circle where all female founders, weirdly, we're all around the same age. And so we do meet once a month, which has been really good. I'm also part of Fresh Founders. And so Fresh Founders are all founders who have built and some have exited successfully. We do angel investments and I get almost more out of them and you know their experience on top of also being able to pass over deals that may be coming to me. I don't have the knowledge of the space or the bandwidth to do the diligence. And it's allowing me to flex a muscle, right, to start mentoring and investing into companies that have high potential. So that's been sort of closer to me. And then I'd say, you know, having a really supportive board and I've been fortunate, you know, uh, serendipitous, but also with some decisions of who I wanted to invest into your book and, and being a good person first and being supportive and really believe into the bigger mission was really key. And so my board is very supportive. I have a Slack channel. I'm very transparent. So that's been really helpful. And then the team, like who you hire is so key in terms of driving accountability. And we've been through, you know, changes and ups and downs and people grow out of their roles or they can't grow at the capacity of the company or they're there for a certain stage and they don't really fit the second stage. All those are really hard and more emotional. But when you've got the right people in the right roles, like it's so amazing to have a team and I'm watching now my team operate at a different level. And that definitely doesn't make me feel so lonely. <laughs> so they, they're taking the accountability, the burden of the company and our goals on their shoulder. And so that's really rewarding to watch. Nice. That's amazing. I love that. And something else I wanted to ask about. So it, it was, uh, I think a month ago, it, it came out with the 2022 numbers of the percentage of funding that went to female founders, and it was depressingly low at 
1.9%. So it seems like this has been a, a big topic that's been discussed a lot. But when you look at the data, it seems like the numbers aren't really moving and venture capital is not flowing to female founders nearly enough. So from your perspective, what needs to be done to actually see some movement here and to actually see some change? I think when I, and I'm going to generalize here, I do mentor some women founders. And I do think that, and I'll include myself, because as a female founder with three kids and not having built a tech company before, there's a level of risk when you go to investors. What they're evaluating is how confident are they in your ability to execute and to attract talent and be committed and they know how hard this is. And so a lot of women, unfortunately, they go and build companies often taking a lot of the risk on their own and they're not necessarily raising capital right away or not hiring fast enough to complement their, their skill set. And so, and it was a, an investor who sort of turned a mirror on myself during my first round of funding. It's like, you know, just look at who you are. And it's almost like, you know, what do you mean? And it, it's so easy to go to gender and say like, oh my God, you said I was a woman. But in fact, I was a risk, not necessarily because of my gender, but because of, you know, I didn't have co-founders and I hadn't built a company before. I had an accent, which was also a little foreign. And, you know, when you're an investor looking at hundreds or thousands of deals, like you're going to go after the ones that you have the most confidence on the ability for the team to execute. And so when I do mentor women, especially if it's a woman founder on their own, like hiring the team as fast as possible or even getting co-founders that complement. And I'm sure if she had four women with complementary skill set who had the experience, who had a great idea, who had executed before, right, were going to fundraise, I bet you that the ratio would be much higher. And so I think if there's a bit of that. I do think also when women founders meet investors, it took me some time to find that voice. And I hear this often in women founders where it's like, well, I need money to grow my company, but investors don't want to give you money to grow your company. They want an opportunity to invest where they're going to get a return and they don't want to miss out on the next best thing. And it took me a while to figure that out. It was listening to a guy that came in the company at the time. And within a week of joining Tailbook, we met investors and he pitched Tailbook. It was the same words but it was pitched in a way that just seemed like so much. And it, it's a, we have a massive TAM, but it was like so like different. And because he could appear a little bit, you know, a younger 30-year-old <laughs> just can come across sort of, someone says like, oh, you have to be cocky. Well, that's super, that made it easier for an early 30-year-old, a lot harder when you're, you know, and they were late 30s at the time with three kids. And so I had to find sort of my voice and how I was going to position myself and get the confidence, which I'd say it was a bit easier in COVID to get that kind of level of confidence being behind a screen and raising, we raised two pretty significant rounds during COVID. And so it's more transactional. It's, you know, right away you're on the screen, you've got to, you know, build that first relationship, but it's, I found it to give me sort of almost a bit of a superpower. And then, yeah, I think it's, how do you build a bit of the FOMO of not missing out. Anyway, lots of learning there and, and definitely a trap that I think women founders can get caught into, unfortunately. And so, and then the awareness of investors that's happening. And so there's often better companies and I think women founders tend to perform better. And so just asking the right question, look in the right areas. And then if you're going to invest in her, like what community, what network, what support can you give her to make sure that she is well surrounded to execute on the ideas, you know, as well as possible? 
Mm, super fascinating and makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, let's switch gears and let's talk about the origin story. So can you take me back to day one or day zero? What were the early days like? And what made you decide this is something that you have to build a company around? The idea of Tailbook came from my own consulting business. I had started a consulting business 16 years ago now. That first light was sitting in a meeting with a client at Johnson & Johnson. And my business was focused on matching business needs with suppliers that could bring innovation. So it was called Matchbook. It was literally like a matchmaking services, almost like a recruiting firm, but for businesses. Mm. And I would build a process to capture the requirements, what the customer was trying to achieve. And then I would go look for companies who had brought innovation. It could be packaging. It could be go-to-market. It could be patient support because I worked a lot in healthcare. And it was a client at Johnson & Johnson who said, before I left, Steph, you need to meet these guys. They're super amazing. They spun off from another company. You should have them in your roster. And she grabbed a two-inch binder from under her desk and started flipping through pamphlets and business cards of companies that she had accumulated clearly over the last 20 years. And she was like, she spent so much time looking for the business card. I had a flight. I'm like, Kim, just send me their contact information. She goes, no, no, they have a really funny name. As soon as I see the card, I'll remember. And then she finally found the card and she asked me to write down their contact information because she didn't want to lose it and then put it back in the binder and then the binder back under her desk. And I knew at the time that a company like J&J and in particular them, they were trying to reduce the number of suppliers globally that they were doing business with down by 50%. And so when they had hired a very expensive consulting firm to try to consolidate And I knew that they didn't, like, how would they know about this amazing startup that was driving value for business unless she was able to talk about it? In a company the size of a Johnson & Johnson, like that institutional knowledge is incredibly difficult to capture. And so all the effort to bring innovation, to bring small and diverse businesses, which they had a very big commitment towards, would essentially be eradicated through trying to consolidate the supplier base by 50%. And they could only do it by looking at spend and risk. And so that was the first sort of ignition of the idea. I drove away thinking there's got to be a better way. This is crazy because even the startup has to do business development to all these different business functions within Johnson & Johnson, even if they have a contract, because no one knows who they are, what they contribute to the business. And so I was like, you know, is there a better way to solve this problem and give more visibility at the corporate level so that they understand how to make better decisions. And as I build my consulting firm over the next nine years, I just start seeing a lot of the friction and gaps in, you know, what the business was trying to achieve, that it's, you know, growing or having better EBITDA to bringing more competition, to mitigating risk, to buying more locally, to, you know, now trying to hit their ESG target. There's so much value in the supplier base but there's no information. And so, you know, when you spend millions of dollars building a supply chain and trying to maximize it and you're, you can't even answer basic question, like how many suppliers do you have? How many of your suppliers are based in Russia? <laughs> how many alternative suppliers do you have in North America? Like, it's basic questions that today most organizations can't answer still. And so 
that's what really got me to start building Teal Book. And then seven years ago, decided to take my courage. I worked with a big company in San Francisco that was facing the same challenge. Lots and lots of manual effort, a lot of silos and disparate information. Took my team on the consulting side, you know, weeks and weeks just to clean the information up. And I was like, this is a company that's sitting across Salesforce, Facebook, LinkedIn, SAP, and they still can't solve this. And we're talking you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in value that could be unlocked. And so that was the catalyst for me to decide to to start Tailbook. Wow. And what's the competitive landscape look like today? Who are those competitors or how do you think about competition? Are they you know, placed into buckets where you have the disruptors and then the status quo? Or how do you think about that? I mean, seven years ago, like, trying to educate investors and customers on, you know, we built a platform that uses machine learning to improve data over time. <laughs> And they're like, are you SaaS? Are you data? I was like, it was very difficult to explain. And we approached it as almost like a LinkedIn for businesses for the enterprise. What our big differentiator became is that what we learned very quickly is that suppliers wouldn't come to a profile, even though it was connected to multiple customers, because there was this portal fatigue. If you're a business selling to the enterprise, you know how many different portals and systems you have to maintain information into, and there's no real benefit. And so we knew at that time that we needed to use something different. That's when we decided to build on GCP and start using some of the BERT models to start scraping data and see, hey, can we actually see this information in a way that doesn't depend on suppliers to come to a portal can we get enough data on every B2B company in the world to be of value to a customer? And what are those use cases that we can expose so that clients actually understand what we're doing and they want to pay for it? That was really difficult. And so it's still what differentiates us is our ability to have done this now for seven years. Like We are going after attributes of B2B companies that are really difficult for anyone to access. And mostly our customers are collecting this information and we're talking about like basic things like the right naming convention, the tax ID number, the location, the contact information, what are they certified for? And so, you know, our investment in data has been really targeted to the buy side. So we definitely have a competitive advantage. And then we build an infrastructure now that as an infrastructure to our customers who need it to have more enrichment and visibility and consistency of the same data across all their systems. And no one has approached the problem this way. Like you'll have a lot of portal-based supplier data management system, but it still requires someone, either an employee or a supplier or a third-party provider to put the information into the portal, which we say, if you, if you hear the word portal, just assume it's going to deliver 20% of the value that you thought. Our clients are investing in these large source-to-pay systems like a Coupa and Ariba and their ERPs, but those systems depend on good data quality and they typically think of data after. So as a third-party service, and we have sophisticated clients like NASDAQ and Goldman Sachs who recently did a webinar with us where they have actually invested in building their own data infrastructure for several years now and have spent millions of dollars. And the catalyst was like, hey, how much money are we spending with this other financial services company before a CEO meeting? And they couldn't answer the question. It took weeks to get the information, right? And they're like, that is super like, <laughs> like it's just not the way we can't operate. That's unacceptable. And so those clients have already built it, but they're seeing that our investment and is accelerating it. And there's a lot of limitations, you know, being, say, a large financial institution building that infrastructure yourself. And so we're learning from them. We're, we're building requirements that 
that matches and, and are very synergistic to over time, our hope is that they start kind of, you know, migrating some of their infrastructure to ours so that we can start, you know, as we're continuing to develop more infrastructure and we're, you know, more APIs and we're ingesting more data set across more attributes that we can really deliver that completeness of information across the entire supplier base. There's a lot of companies and methodology to tackle that same problem. It's just that no one has positioned themselves the way we have. Now, I've introduced you as a supplier data platform. Is that a category term and phrase that you've created or is that an existing category? No, we created it. And that's the hardest thing, again, it was to explain what we are and in a way that customers would understand. Because if you approach a use case, so what do you need the data for? It's very easy. And we had that trap where we had designed a customer journey. It started with a use case. And this case was supplier diversity. So how many of your suppliers are small, diverse, certified? And they have to report this quarterly. And often they have to report this to the SEC. And so it has to be high quality. The process today without automation is very manual and they're underreporting because a lot of the suppliers are not coming to the portal. And so, and we're talking, they may be underreporting hundreds of millions of dollars in spend, which would enable them to achieve their target or get federal funding or, or, or. And so when we designed that customer journey and it's almost like we grew really fast that suddenly our go-to-market team start focusing on that use case, start selling to that functional team and that functional team, all they could see is a software and they want more features and functionality. And then we start competing with incumbent software company in this space that were way cheaper. And then those functional team don't really care about fixing the company data. They care about what they're reporting, right? And so that was really difficult because then we started getting into pricing wars and features and functionalities that are not aligned with where we're heading. And so we course corrected and Supplier diversity data is still really key for our customers. It's a great way to start, but they're not buying Tailbook just for that data set. They're buying the infrastructure and that's where they can start. And, you know, a use case that shows incremental improvement that helps them achieve their objective faster is a great way for customers to experience a data first approach and then create energy and momentum and permission for us to expand. And so we need to find a word like, how do you qualify? How do you identify what we are? Is it is a data platform, but in the world of supply chain and procurement and enterprise, data can mean a lot of things. And so we had to be more specific about this is, you know, supplier data platform because we're really after everything, you know, that relates to a B2B company. And can you talk us through some of the activities that you've pursued to evangelize that category and really educate the market on why it matters and, and why they need it? It started a long time ago. And I think the reason why we have such a presence in the market is because we invested early in thought leadership. Like personally, when I started Tailbook, I have a friend in PR. She was like, you have to post blogs. And I'm French speaking for me to write you know, blogs on a daily or weekly. It was like so daunting. But I did start writing blogs to give sort of a thought leadership presence on the topic, start educating. Then we proceed to do a lot of different webinars to educate the market initially on what is ML, what is AI, so that we could give them something that they could start speaking more, you know, with more knowledge or articulate better to their own organization. And then building relationship, that sort of opened the door to contacting customers or prospect and chief procurement officer in our case and say, hey, we're working on something that will solve this problem that we know is complex, but would, you know, if you agree that having better data would 
enable digital procurement success. We'd love to talk because we're just picking our brain as we're developed. And so we built these relationships early on with, and we found these chief procurement officers that were thought leaders, that were excited about what we're doing, and then we're able to bring a voice to the problem. And that was the same thing with analysts and thought leaders in the space. And so three years ago, we were the first company to appear on a Kearney spider graph in our space that it was called the Data Foundation, where you have all these software players and you have now that chart is like blown out. There's so many companies that receive funding and supply chain and procurement, and we're still in that middle. There's other logos in that middle. And so now it's differentiating why Tailbook is different than all these other logos. But that was key to define us as the data foundation to power the buy side digital enterprise. What we're not, we're not a data foundation. We're part of a data foundation group. But what Tailbook is, is a supplier data platform that becomes a data foundation to, you know, enabling digital procurement success. I mean, it's a constant reiteration of how we define it. But, you know, having the help of analysts and thought leaders in this space and using their words and how they're articulating it. You know, even recently, someone's like, well, your data is a service. And it makes sense if you understand data and you come from a data sort of background. But we tested this with our customers. And as soon as we said that, the chief procurement officer asked, well, where's your service people? Are they, you know, which country are they in India? Like right away, because our customers have been buying third-party service data for so long, they assume it's manual and it's humans, right, doing the work. And so we kind of laugh like, okay, we can't use this because our customers are not sophisticated enough to understand that data as a service is the automation of collecting, enriching, distributing better data quality. They'll assume right away that it's actually a, a real service with people, humans doing the work. So, you know, you have to pay attention and listen to the words that are being used by the market. And then, you know, with the gardeners of this world is building relationship, continuously testing some of those messaging with them so that as they're seeing other players. And there's another company that came up and said they're an AI-based data supplier platform after we came out with ours. What's well, great news, actually, because you want other companies to start becoming part of the space because Gartner won't create a category with one player. They'll create a category when there's multiple players. And so it's to our advantage that other companies are speaking that way so that then it becomes more of a gold standard in the market that you should have a supplier data platform as part of your architecture when you're implementing large-scale procurement systems. And has Gartner embraced that fully then? Are they starting to build out a magic quadrant for supplier data platform, or is it still early days for that? I don't know, but good, good, wink, wink, if you know people at Gartner. <laughs> and yes. listening, uh, we're definitely close to them. And you know, they, when they release things that they're typically, what we've seen is they're more focused on the use case, but the, every use case within that space what it depends on for the use case to deliver its full potential is data, right? And so they definitely recognize that data is critical and we're doing more work to, you know, refine and educate them. And so we talk more with them on on the use case and there's a lot of players that solve the use case in different ways. And we're hoping that the supplier data platform becomes a real category. Nice. Now, last question. I know we're getting close to being up on time here. So let's zoom out into the future. Three years from today, maybe five years from today, what does the company look like? And what does your impact on the industry as a whole look like? Yeah, we hope that every implementation of a software in the space that relies on B2B company data comes with a tailbook. And so, you know, we are building data packs that are specific to implement an SAP, a Workday, a Jagger, an Ivalua, a GP, et cetera. 
And so it's sort of the insurance policy that your implementation will most likely fail or go you know, over budget or get delayed if you don't have data quality. And the investment that you're making into those systems is not being materialized in the way it should because of data quality. So we're hoping if this sort of becomes a standard that you get your data up front, it's automated, it's API into your system. You know, the levers for us is, you know, how much data can we ingest? And we've rebuilt our platform to ingest an enormous amount of data. So always looking for new data sources for a couple of reasons. One is to expand the number of attributes and we have data packs. And so the data packs are levers. The more data packs we have, the more it unlocks our customers' use cases and the more they're going to want to integrate our data across multiple functional teams and the stickier we become and the more value we can deliver to our clients. And so that's the internal investment. That's what we're going to be looking in the future. Like, are there companies doing some really interesting work on some of the data assets that can accelerate the value of those data packs either by expanding them or making them more robust or better quality. So one of the key differentiators of our platform is we're introducing a trust score to every single attribute that our customers can apply business rules. And so the more data points to the same record, the more trust score can get to be higher. And then, you know, we uh, with APIs really flexible, our clients can put into a data lake, a Tableau, again, a SAP Oracle, whatever. And then on the application side, what we're hoping for, you know, we are rebuilding some table stake application and this will become, you know, partner sort of M&A opportunity for us is how many applications are in the hands of users and how's the usage of our data through an application contributes to our data moat. And so we have the opportunity to expand into other markets, expand into the mid-market. And so we're definitely looking to be the gold standard and B2B supplier data and have the most trusted source of data. And so, you know, we'll see, but three years seems a long way away and it's going to be around the corner, but we definitely have the right team. We've got capital. We've got three years of runway right now. We are really good positioned from a product perspective. We've got some big brand names that are partnering with us. And so it's ours to lose if we don't execute fast enough and as well as we can in this market where it's all about efficiencies and you know, <laughs> they're very different than the market that we were in last year. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And wow, that is an exciting vision. Stephanie, this has flown by. We are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. If people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, so definitely you can look at table.com if you're interested. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very active. And if you're interested in data <laughs> procurement, probably I do share some of my founder journey, but it's mostly focused on my professional network. If you really want to get to know me, I'm on Instagram, but it's more my my own personal life and and other, you know, things that are happening outside of work. But uh, yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best place from a professional perspective that you can connect with me and feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to give some time if I have time to mentor or just share some experiences or ideas. Awesome. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and talk about this vision. This is all super exciting and we'll be rooting for you and hope to have you back on in a couple of years to talk about everything that's happened. Yeah, thank you, Brett, for having me. No problem. Keep in touch. 